Welcome to the Toxin Terminator, helping people to restore and renew their health by removing the toxins from the home and their lives. Join in as industry thought leaders help you understand the physical and emotional effects these products can have on you and your family, and the safe alternatives you can use to remove the hidden toxins for renewed health. Now, please welcome your host, the Toxin Terminator herself, Amy Carlson. And hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Toxin Terminator. We're so glad that you are turning in each and every week. Listen, if you're a new listener to our show, please hit that subscribe button so that you get our latest episodes coming out each and every week. I am so excited for our next guest. I met him through a group that I'm involved in. And he is so passionate about what he does. I've had an opportunity to go to his YouTube channel and watch so many of his videos. And you can tell just how excited he is to provide value to you and how excited he is to really teach you about nutrition. I really feel that by watching him, that is such a passion of his of making sure you know what to do on that food journey because there's so many different things going on around there. And we're going to touch into those today because there's so many buzzwords out in the industry now. And I'd really like it if Dr. Esposito is going to really give us the nuts and bolts. And he likes to talk in terms that we all can understand. So even though he's a doctor, you're going to really get him in real life and you're going to understand his message. Now, he is a doctor of chiropractic and he practices in New York. He is most interested in functional medicine and health coaching. He has a passion for cooking. Please go to his YouTube channel. You're going to see that. He creates realistic, sustainable practices to help you prevent and treat chronic disease. He also is a podcast host, The Art of Eating. I tell you, go check it out. It great, great episodes on there. He is a co-host with that. He has written many different articles for places like Thrive Global, Authority Magazine, and Fullscript, as well as he puts out a lot of his written content on his own websites, evokehealth.com and insideouthealthwellness.com as well. Dr. Esposito, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Oh, that was a lovely intro. Thanks for having me on today. I'm excited to be here. You bet. So I touched in, I think, just a little bit about the healthy eating. Because if you watch your videos, and I just love them. They're quick. They're easy to follow. It's no nonsense. Sometimes I think we get overwhelmed with the advice that's given. But is cooking really your passion and really helping people understand how they fuel their body? Yeah. So... I guess I'll put it in the context of kind of where of how I kind of fell into where I'm at with it. So I grew up, um, I'm from New York City. Both my parents from Brooklyn, they're both Italian. So food was always kind of like a big part of my life growing up. Sure. I never cooked, but my mom cooked a lot. So I watched her a ton. I kind of would just pick around and be like a taste tester as a kid and stuff <laughs> like that. So I got really into it, but I never did it for myself. And I guess my health journey personally started when I was an undergrad. I started developing some some digestive issues. I put on a little bit of weight, but I was an athlete in college and I just figured a lot of it was muscle, but a lot of issues were coming around with it, like bloating, kind of like indigestion, 
not necessarily fatigue, but like lethargy and a little bit of like brain fog started to become an issue. And I didn't really think anything of it. I thought I was making good decisions or at least whatever you can do in a college cafeteria. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. And it's important to, you know, not skim over that lifestyle. Yeah. You know, that you are living in college when you're going to, you know, any kind of medical schooling, that's pretty grueling. And you kind of tweaked in there just a little bit that you were a college athlete as well. So, wow, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a lot on your plate. Yeah. And, you know, like while I was doing it again, like I, at this point, I still really never cooked and I didn't really have too much time to because of just a a bunch of different responsibilities I had. So I graduate college and I decided to go to chiropractic school. So this is the first time in my life I'm now living by myself on my own in like a studio apartment in Connecticut. And I had to figure out how to eat. So this was my time to, I had to teach myself how to cook. And I I was still kind of busy there, obviously, with classes and whatnot. So I tried to make it a game almost. Sure. I tried to get everything done in like under an hour. And I taught myself the basics from like how to turn on the stove to like boiling water. (laughs) And it's just kind of grown over time. And the dishes I started cooking were really the things I kind of knew growing up. Again, like a lot of American Italian stuff. So you could like imagine those were kind of the first things I figured out how to do. And while I was doing this, I noticed like a lot of those kind of symptoms that came on in college didn't really go away. And about a year or so in, so I've kind of gotten a little bit in the cooking game. I started taking more biochemistry courses in the chiropractic curriculum as well. And we had this awesome teacher. She was actually a naturopathic doctor who taught the class. And she would put everything in biochem in the context of nutrition. And that kind of finally kind of piqued my interest because my original plan going to chiropractic school was to focus mostly on sports rehab. That was my initial plan. Okay. But this intrigued me enough to go concurrently get my master's degree in nutrition as well. And while I'm learning these, while I'm taking these classes and learning all this information, some point a few months in it clicked. I'm like, you know what, if I'm learning this stuff, I might as well see if it works. And I feel like how most people end up in this space you become your first patient in a way. So (laughs) aren't we? That's so, so very true. Right. So for me, it was just kind of, now I kind of had a little bit of a feel for what I was doing in the kitchen. So now I started making the changes on my own. I cut out a lot of kind of the simple carbs. Dairy was actually easy for me. I know that's hard for a lot of people. I'd never really ate it to begin with. So that was very easy to get rid of. And it was really just slowly transitioning to more of like a plant-based approach over like the next year or so. And within... The first, I'd say like four to six weeks, a lot of those symptoms went away. And then within, I'd say like four or five, six months, somewhere around there, all that weight I put on in college like came off. And at that point, I was like, oh, okay, now I figured out now what I want to do for a living. And since then, that's kind of how I ended up down this functional medicine path and, you know, starting the podcast and the YouTube channel. And that's kind of where we're at today. <laughs> I love that story. So when you say your symptoms went away, remind me what, you know, was that the kind of the lethargy and the bloating yeah. and... Yeah, a lot of those kind of like vague gut symptoms that you get, you know, the bouts between like diarrhea and constipation, they'd be in flux too. And really the clarity was the biggest thing, I think, for me. I mean, it wasn't apparent that it was debilitating, but it was noticeable. And for that to kind of completely clear up, and for me, someone at the time who didn't drink coffee at all, or at least can get off of it and know it's not going to affect me on a day-to-day basis, that was big for me. 
So that I think was like really the one that stuck out to me the, the most. The most there. Yeah. I changed over to a vegan mm. way of eating just before Christmas. I did a 72 hour fast and then I ate mostly whole foods, but did a lot of meat. And I still have been having digestive issues with the bloating, the gas, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And certainly that has gone away. But one of my biggest things I'm noticing is my skin. Oh my word. My skin is so different. Yeah. That seems to be something that people come in with, at least that I've worked with, that isn't necessarily their primary complaint. But over, say, like the first you know, two months or whatever, if they had some skin issues, they're like, oh, my skin's less oily, or I noticed this acne used to go away. I know I live with my girlfriend. That's a big thing. Sometimes she'll break out if, you know, we go out to eat and mm-hmm. maybe has something and then, you know, we transition back and all of it goes away. So like these, yeah, that seems to be a, a good side effect. It is. Making some of those changes. Well, us of the older community like it when our skin looks good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. So when you say, can you tell me and us what the difference is? Because you say Mm plant-based and I was taught vegan. Are they the same or are they different? Well, uh, so, okay. This is actually something that I hear a lot in a lot of the groups I'm in. There seems to be a lot of confusion on the definition. Sure. What I will say is I will use my definition and then I'll, I could maybe talk about a little bit more what I do. To me, whole foods plant-based means exactly that. It's not strictly, I would say, vegan or vegetarian per se, because I mean, as you know, as well, you can be a vegan or vegetarian and eat like crap as well. So like to me, that's not necessarily, I don't want to make it synonymous with veganism. It is just literally a focus on mostly eating plants. Okay. So for me, I define it as, I'd say at least 70% plants, whatever you're eating. Now, I know for a lot of people there, it's really tough to give up animal products completely. Maybe you don't want to. Maybe there's just that kind of mental barrier you want to get over. That's fine. I will say for me personally, I would not consider myself a vegan. I do eat animal products at this point, maybe like once or twice a month. Like if it's a holiday, I'm not going to skip it. If I know it's a good cut or where it came from, I'm not going to skip it. It's it's once a month maybe or something like that. The other thing, there is a butcher shop I like. I will go make my own bone broths. So if they have bones from sustainably sourced animals and properly raised animals, I will buy those just to make bone broths as well with leftover vegetable scraps and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But that's really it. And again, if I go out to a restaurant once in a while, I will get something if it's something that really intrigues me. But in terms of me buying it, I rarely do if ever. So yes, it's not 100% vegan, but I guess it would be like 90, somewhere between 90 and 95%. Sure. So yeah. What I'm hearing from you, which this is my philosophy with what I do, is it's really personal. Everything, you know, I I don't subscribe to the one size fits all program. No. Um, I don't think that a vegan lifestyle is for everyone. I don't think, you know, a, I think, you know, everybody has to do what works for them, mm-hmm. you know, individually, right? So, you know, because the meal plans and the lifestyles are such a big buzzword right now. You've got keto, you have, you know, vegan, you've got paleo. Mm-hmm. Um, gosh, what other ones are you hearing about? 
Oh, all of them. I mean, there's Dash and there's, you go like the Ayurvedic route. There's a bunch of different types. I mean, the, the list is endless. You could still go back. People, I still hear people using Atkins and the South Beach diet, which are kind of synonyms too. So yeah, all that's out there. Mediterranean diet is another one you didn't mention. Um, but the one thing I do see, at least in the research I've done, sure. and wherever you fall on that realm and... Uh, I don't want to say it's my job to tell everyone to give up animal products completely if they don't want to, but if you are going to consume it, you want to get the highest quality ones possible. Um, Why? <laughs> well, again, this is going to come back to how they're raised, right? So if we're talking about the conventional farm animals, you know, what's getting in their feed in that corn is added hormones. So they grow faster and antibiotics. So they make sure they don't get sick. And the irony of this, if say we take a cow, for instance, is their digestive tracts are literally not made to eat corn. They're made to eat grass. And this leads to them getting sick over time. And ultimately, we are what we eat. And we're also what we eat ate. Mm -hmm. So that, ate. that becomes a big... I love that. Yes. <laughs> yes. So the nice part about being more plant-based and even leaning towards vegan is you cut out the middleman almost completely, which is it makes life simpler. For me, that's been a big key. The other thing is it's much more cost effective. Even if you are purchasing organic produce, that's still cheaper than buying any sort of good quality animal product for the most part. So that's another reason I think I stick towards it. Right. What do you see, you know, because I, well, I don't eat meat anymore, but when I did, I always did the, you know, no hormones, no antibiotics, mm -hmm. grass-fed, you know, beef, and it tastes different. Mm -hmm. You can get better that way too. But why do we want to avoid those things? I mean, we all know that our beef, our poultry, oh, don't get me started on that. I grew up in the Midwest, <laughs> so I'm in the farming mm -hmm. community. And if you ever went to a poultry farm, you'd never touch it again a day in your life. <laughs> it's solved. Well, sometimes, yeah, that's kind of the the last straw for some people. I've seen that or at least heard it. Yeah. <laughs> but what effects do the hormones and the antibiotics have on our bodies when we eat that? Well, again, you're adding exogenous hormones into a system that in an ideal world can function on its own. So actually, Dr. Callie, who I work with a ton, um, obviously on our podcast, she's the co-host. She's big into women's health. And we talk about exogenous hormones all the time, particularly in the case of women, because if you have, say, like an irregular cycle or something going on where maybe your periods are regular or, you know, you're getting these mood swings and things of that nature, a lot of this could be due to these exogenous hormones that are sort of taking it to an extreme versus you making your own in the amounts you need. And that actually ends up normalizing it. I've seen that with some of my female patients as well. Get it? Those exogenous hormones do have an effect. And if we don't utilize them, a lot of them end up getting stored in fatty tissue to be saved for later. So that seems to be like where a lot of it ends up getting stored. If it's not used and if it is used, it's usually for has some sort of negative consequence associated with it. Right, right. So, yeah. In your practice, what are you seeing as kind of, I mean, as you know, my research shows that chronic disease is on the rise, even with all the information that really is becoming at our fingertips now, it's still on the rise. Are you seeing that to be the case as well in your practice? Or what are you seeing kind of as, boy, these are the top three things that if we could somehow fix this, you know, it would sure make a difference in people's lives. Oh, well, um, well, 
First, I'll say yes. So yes, it does seem that like these chronic diseases are on the rise. And the irony of it in the research I've done is the number one factor that contributes to a lot of our diseases and ultimate deaths is actually our diet, what we eat on a day-to-day basis. Right. So it would be foolish to come up with any plan that doesn't include and at best highlight what we're eating. Those are the major changes we have to make. Also, on top of that, if you want to just kind of expand upon that point, it seems to me, everything I've read, the more plants you eat, almost shifting almost completely towards veganism, lifespans seem to increase and markers for cholesterol, high blood pressure, heart disease in general, major killers, the top killers in the US especially, fall completely. You can normalize blood pressure. You can get rid of all these cardiovascular risk factors. Even and obviously the other chronic diseases as well, but even if it was just say heart disease, right? If you could cut the incidence of heart disease, say in to three quarters to a half of what it is by simply changing what you're eating, and that's all it did. To me, that should be the first line of defense, right? It's just changing what you're eating. Now, the second point is obviously, I think now we live in a world more than ever that we're exposed to so many things, it's, it's very easy to get numb to it. Mm. It's also, you don't know necessarily who to listen to. There's a lot of noise out there in spaces that are, they're overcrowded, really. Right. And it's really hard to pick up who to listen to. And sometimes maybe we're not listening to the right people and the right ones who are not necessarily informed. You know, just because someone say has a million or two Instagram followers doesn't necessarily mean they know anything about health. What? (laughs) (laughs) But unfortunately, this seems to be where a lot of this stuff, diet culture, things like that is influenced. They're like, oh, I tried this and it worked for me. And there's a lot of confounding factors that you don't hear. You just hear what you see in a picture and a paragraph versus what actually happened. So like, unless you know step-by-step what someone did, why they did it and how they did it, it's really hard to jump to those conclusions. But those, that's you know the filtered reality that you get through social media. Sure, sure. So that I think is a real problem that I think on an individual level is much easier to control. And it's really just where are you getting your information from? And if it is from social media, understand the context of it. And more importantly, what's useful and what isn't. That seems to me like one of the huge things I get, because I get questions almost how you asked before about diets, about, oh, which one should I do? I saw this, it worked for Celebrity X and, you know, should I do it? And I'm like, well, you know, you're also living through their kind of filtered reality. So you don't know what's going on. You don't know what, like if there were some potentially like surgical procedures that are done that are going on here <laughs> you too. Like, like, so you have to... <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, you got to take these things with a grain of salt, but it also happens on a smaller level. Like, oh, you know, Betty in the office, you know, lost 30 pounds on keto. Well, maybe she went really hard at it for like a month and something that's a super low carb diet, you lose a lot of water weight very quickly, which means you're going to lose a lot of weight quickly. Right. But also something like that is not sustainable long-term either. So chances are you're going to see Betty three months from now with all the weight back on. Right. Like understand this stuff in context and For me, a big thing is sustainability. So that would probably be the last point. What is sustainable for you? Take little goals each day, each week and add on to them. And if you can stick with something for a week that's small, maybe it's something, I don't know, I'm going to have no meat on Wednesday this week. And if you get through Wednesday, great, go to next week, do it Wednesday and Thursday or something like that. 
little wins each week or maybe, you know, I'll cut out dairy for a couple of days and then maybe make it three days and stretch it and make little goals that are sustainable because before you realize it, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, two months down the road, you've actually had a lot of small victories that have compounded over time. Right. So going into like this kind of crash diet mentality and diet culture in general, it's going to exist and blaming diet culture isn't going to do anything on its own. It's going to be there. Whether you like it or not, it's there. Right. But it is your responsibility to take control over what you can and understand it exists and then, you know, recognize it is and just do what you can around it. Right. I love the what you say about sustainability because uh, for someone asking, what should I do? Do I do, you know, for you like food, paleo, vegan, you know, this type of thing. What are you going to do? Mm -hmm. Because if you're not going to do it, nothing's going to work for you. Uh, Yeah, that's the root of it. I mean, listen, it's from a therapeutic standpoint, some diets might be worth it in the short term, but they are developed to be short term for a reason. It could be maybe for like a couple of weeks and then you go back to something or not. But we're not talking about acute things anymore. We're talking about majority chronic diseases, which do not develop overnight. These are things that have developed over years and years, if not decades. Correct. So if you're looking for an answer in two weeks, in a month, that's not going to happen. That's just the reality of it. You have to be willing to commit to something that you can change over, say, six months to a year and sustain it ideally for the rest of your life. So it's taking little blocks to build upon each day, each week. And that's kind of where it is. Yeah. It's not a diet. It's a lifestyle change. 100%. You know, you have to commit to that lifestyle change. I love that you talk about because so much of our society wants that quick fix. I want that quick fix. I want the quick answer, the quick solution. And if they don't get that, you know, I went to the gym for a week. I don't see any results. So therefore, I'm not going to go back to the gym anymore. Well, yeah. It's the same thing. And that's it's the same thing. And for me now, at least more recently, I've been working with people, particularly if they want to come in for weight loss. Um, But it works with other things too. So I'm a huge fan of food diaries, food journaling, particularly in the beginning when you know you're trying new things, you really want to track what you're doing, and more importantly, you know, potential symptoms you might have. Because if you do happen to have a food intolerance, not an allergy, food sensitivity, food intolerance. You can potentially have symptoms anywhere between 24 to 72 hours after. That's three days. So I don't know about you. I can't tell you what I ate on like Saturday or Sunday off the top of my head. But if you write it down, you can track, oh, this might have happened. Now, also, the other thing you can track other than symptoms is also obviously weight. But I wouldn't track these things day to day. You would do it every day. You would weigh yourself every day. But you're not comparing Monday to Tuesday. You're comparing, say, this was the New Year's, say January 1st to February 1st. Right. January 2nd to February 2nd. Really, that whole first month is just data collection. If something happens, just mark it and don't worry about it. But that first 30 days of making changes is really just your baseline. Right. And then from there, you use that to gauge upon. But if you're not even willing to give it that first month, it's going to be really hard to really make any decisions without that baseline data. Exactly. So do you have a application or methodology for people to food journal that you like to use? I mean, I have a PDF fillable one that I give people. If you sign up for a newsletter, it comes in the newsletter. So you'll just have one and you can just reuse it as many times as you want. That's fine. Perfect. What else? There are, if you want some on your phone, you can use 
like my fitness pal and things like that. Those are more like specific calorie counters. I mean, you can use it to log what you eat. It's going to be tougher. I think I'm not sure. I haven't used it in a while. If you can like take notes in terms of like, Oh, how I felt today and stuff like that. Not a hundred percent sure if you could do that, but you can literally just Google a food journal and you could find tons of them in images and just, just print one out and start there. Yep. Or, you know, old people like us, we just grab a little steno notebook and sure. write everything down. Yep. Get, get a marble <laughs> notebook or something like that and, yep. and do that too. It all works. You don't need to get fancy with it. Well, you were saying another word and I have to share just a little bit of a story right now sure. because I think it's important when we're talking about nutrition to understand calories because I was out to eat with my parents who totally do not subscribe to my lifestyle in the least. <laughs> and I was having a plant-based burger mm-hmm. uh, and my dad said, oh, what is that that you're eating? And I told him and he said, oh, you know, Burger King has one of those. <laughs> and I was looking it up in the calories. There's only 30 calories difference between that and the other one. So why would I want to eat that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, what do you say, you know, to situations like that? Because if you're tracking calories, I think that's so wrong, you know, because that's not giving you a definition or or really what's good for the body. Yes. So if you're using strictly calorie counting as a way to like lose weight or feel better, then I would say, yes, that's misguided. My caveat to that will be if you are starting in the beginning and have no idea how many calories you're eating, or if you don't realize maybe, you know, this food is very high calorie versus this one's very low. I mean, if you're eating mostly plant-based, I mean, I don't count calories personally, but also I'm not training to hit like a specific goal or something like that either. So, but high fiber foods, generally, if you're eating them, they're mostly water to begin with. So they're very water dense and calorie deprived pretty much. Right. That being said, if you've never done it, I tell people in the beginning, if you want to use a calorie tracker for like a few weeks, just to like get an idea of where you're at, right? go ahead, but don't live your life to the point where like a number is going to dictate everything you do necessarily. It's more the quality of food you're eating because again, calories don't necessarily take into account gut microbiome because ultimately they end up, the bugs in our gut end up getting to the food we eat too. That's their food as well. And there's no way to really account for at least a really good way to account for how much of the food they utilize. So not every calorie is exactly equal. And to treat our bodies as bomb calorimeters is just not accurate. So it's much more important to focus on what foods you're eating versus how many calories they are necessarily, especially in the beginning. Right. And if you want to use it as a gauge, that's fine. Unfortunately, I will say this based on my research, and this is kind of like the conclusion I've come to with it. It's a very imperfect method, calorie counting. That being said, there isn't a better one (laughs) either. There isn't really like another alternative. So, and it can vary wildly too. So there was a study I was looking at a few weeks ago, preparing for a video. It followed these runners who all subscribed to a magazine. Okay. And there was a linear relationship based on how much they ran every week versus how lean they were. Okay. But what they also noticed, because they tracked these runners for years, they all got fatter over time. All of them. Now, they were at different scales depending on how active they were. But ultimately, the authors of the study, they, they figured, oh, well, if you want to get to a point where you're going to at least like maintain your weight, you're going to have to run something like 60 miles per week every week. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I've never run 60 miles, I think, in a month versus a week. (laughs) So that's not going to happen. And that's just silly if you think about it. I mean, what we eat dictates somewhere between like 80 and 90% of our actual weight versus exercise. And I'm not bashing exercise because that's physical activity because that's a huge part of overall health. But you have to understand if you're just tracking how active you are and trying to correlate that with weight loss and health and not even dictate what you're eating or change what you're eating, you're missing the forest for the trees in, in a sense. Right. Yeah. Right. No, I totally understand. So tell me, oh, there are so many things that you just connected into, I, I, in my brain anyway. You know, the gut-brain connection, the microbiome. Mm-hmm. I was just reading a study through Blue Zones mm-hmm. that they were saying that they you know, the science and research says that the microbiome was so highly dictated by the food that we eat. But what they're finding out in their newest research and studies is that it's very much social too. Yeah. Have you heard that one yet? Not necessarily social, but I will say this. There is a direct link to what we eat and what that microbiome is made out of. Oh yeah. Now with that, If we're going to keep eating, you know, like poor foods and stuff like that, these opportunistic bacteria that cause issues are going to thrive and crowd out more bacteria that either are beneficial or at least neutral. Right. That thrive on more fiber and really things that overall help our health. And one thing to really keep in mind is that 80% or so of the immune cells, the immune system is located right around that gut lining because that is really where the closest proximity that our world comes into contact with the outside world. It's the digestive tract. Right. So it makes sense that most of our immune system is located right around that. That is the barrier to entry. It's one cell layer thick. So it's really important that that gets maintained. And when those, those gap junctions begin to loosen, when those opportunistic bacteria begin to thrive, this is what leads to that inflammatory response, usually around the gut, but it gets a chance to kind of become a systemic issue if it's there for a long time. And that, in terms of a social aspect, I've seen it more, I guess, on the immune system side versus the actual gut microbiome side. But there is interplay between those bacteria because which species thrive is dictated by the food we eat. Right. So if you're not following a good, you know, food plan, do you subscribe to the fact that you should take supplements? And are there probiotics, prebiotics, you know, where do you go with that? So where I fall on supplements is much more on the conservative side. So I do think in the, especially in the initial part of it, and it does vary case to case, if there are more extreme cases where you might have to do more intensive gut style work, then yes, it will be more intensive supplement regimen for a short amount of time. Right. The goal long-term is to get off ideally all supplements if possible. Right. In the beginning, if you need that boost, that's fine. But there's no reason to continually take a probiotic if you're just going to keep eating the same crappy foods because it's not going to stick. Those same bacteria are just going to get into the system and then die off if you're feeding the bad bacteria. They're just going to get crowded out the same way. So you're kind of wasting your money if you don't right. change. I mean, exactly. You might short-term be alleviating some maybe short-term symptoms, but they're going to come back if you're not fixing the root cause of the problem. That is inevitable. Gotcha. So I don't know about you. I am not in the business of trying to give people supplements the rest of their life when they don't need it. Right. So sure, I think probiotics could be a useful tool in the transition period with the goal initially, uh, eventually being maybe we don't need these anymore at some point. 
but we need, again, you need to be working towards that. Right. Or else, you know, you might as well not even be buying them in the first place because they're not going to fix the problem on their own. I think that's a big, big kind of misconception when it comes to supplements in general. They are not going to fix the problem on their own. Right. Now, do you consider chronic inflammation to be also like a chronic disease? Or do you think, is it chronic inflammation then turns into chronic disease or are they not even one in the same or? I think the thing with chronic inflammation, I think this is kind of what turns off a lot of the conventional medical community about it is it is a vague concept. Mm -hmm. And there is nothing that chronic inflammation is like directly tied to X, Y, and Z disease, but it, it does cause a lot of these right. or contribute to a lot of these inflammatory diseases or chronic diseases over time. So that is kind of unique to each person, what they end up coming down with, which diseases end up kind of proliferating. And I think that's where the misconception is. You're looking for direct cause and effect where that doesn't necessarily exist. So that's, I think, where it kind of the misconception is with it. I mean, because the inflammation is there and it's causing said disease, but just because it causes said disease in person A doesn't mean the same thing is going to happen to person B, C, and D. Right. So once again, we're hearing it's not a one-size-fits-all for anything. You know, we really need to look at the individual unique person mm -hmm. um, when we're figuring out what to do and where to go and where to turn. And even the symptoms that get presented, even though it might be the same as person B or C, doesn't mean that the... Uh, Underlying cause? Yeah, it's going to be the same thing, right? right? Yeah. You know? Yeah, it, it manifests itself in different ways in each person. And that's why, you know, it's really important to at least work with someone over time who can kind of coach you through it and really kind of walk you through the process, especially those first couple months. Because it it's, it's a huge change. And coaches are such a great tool of accountability. Yeah. You know, do you think that that's kind of like the downfall of why some people can't make the changes? It's not that they don't want to. It's just there's not that accountability. Mm. Do you think that's what the big thing of why coaching helps and works so well? Yes. And again, I think it goes back to this point of information overload, right? Because again, everyone can, I mean, I could go on Instagram right now and see 10 different things for 10 different diets and they all work, right? So yep. it's very easy to kind of see that when that is just so, it's at the forefront of so much of our interaction nowadays, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, whatever you want it to be on, Twitter. Right. It's going to be there. So even if it's just to kind of help keep you on track and be like, hey, like this is a plan that we put together and you have to like be willing to buy into it for the long run. And having someone to keep you accountable or at least just bounce questions off of, right. hey, I saw this, you know, what's your opinion or whatever. Right. That I think is really important too, to help kind of get those questions answered along the way, because nothing's going to happen. Even if it was like a 60, 90 minute session, there's no way all those questions are going to get answered. So having a resource that you could bounce questions off of in real time is really important. Well, in a resource that you can trust, right? right. So we all look to, to you know, because... You and I see the same things. We see, oh, this is good for us. And three years later, the, the science community says it's all bad for us. You know, it, and that's, you know, with an average consumer, they're just overwhelmed. Totally. You know, Google, you should like really stay off of Google, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so many times. All right. So 
because this is the toxin terminator, I want to know, what do you consider some of the biggest sources of toxins in our foods? In food. So the biggest ones I would say have to come from the pesticide herbicide sprays that are on kind of conventional sprays. We kind of went over already the exogenous hormones and antibiotics in the food supply. Those are probably the two biggest ones, I would say. And there are tons of different types we could get into. Sure. Drinking water is a huge thing. So we use filtered water. We have a filter at the apartment here. You can go on the Environmental Working Group's website. I don't know if this is news to your audience, but you could plug in your zip code and you could actually see how many toxins are in your water supply, depending on where it's coming from, wherever that reservoir is. So if you are interested, go on ewg.org and look for their water database and you can just plug in your zip code and there you go. So that's a huge one too. What I've learned, interestingly, that's a huge one, and I actually learned this on our podcast in one of the episodes, is, and this isn't necessarily food, but it's, it is a daily thing you do, and it's cosmetics. Yes. Particularly in the, with women, just makeups and things like that. And we had someone on a few months ago, and she was saying, well, women are seven or eight times more likely to develop an autoimmune disease. And you know, how many more products are we putting on ourselves on a day-to-day basis? And I was like, huh. That's a great point. And obviously not something I do on a day-to-day basis. So it's just not something that comes to mind first thing. But I was like, wow, that makes a lot of sense. So those, I would say, probably are the three biggest things. In terms of food, easiest thing is to try to use organic produce whenever you can. Mm -hmm. If there are local farmers near you, develop a relationship with them, ask them how they raise their food, you know, what they do to it, how they, what they use, if they use any, you know, fertilizers, pesticides, stuff like that. Make that relationship if you can. That's great. If you do go to the store and you know if you get organic produce at the market too, that's also a good place to be. If you can't, if budgets are really tight, again, the Environmental Working Group is a huge resource I use in my practice and we talk about all the time. Mm-hmm. The Clean 15, Dirty Dozen, they have an app on their phone now for any food product. And I think the skincare one, it's all in one app. I think it's called like Healthy Living. Yes. On my head. Yes. It- okay. A free app. Yes, free app. Everyone should use it, especially if you know you're you haven't been, say, food shopping or shopping for this stuff with that kind kind of eye. That's like baseline stuff because it's a free resource that everyone has. Right. That's probably, I think, where you would start. Those are great tips. And I love the free apps because if you're haven't been trained how to read labels, you haven't been trained how to, you know, know different things. And then you start learning, you know, situations like, you know, the clean 15, dirty dozen, you know, knowing the the fruit and vegetables with thicker skins is mm-hmm. some of the things that you can go not necessarily have to get organic if, if you're on a yeah, budget. Yeah. Yeah. You know? The other thing that I have found that works really well for us, and again, we're single. It's my husband and I, our kids are grown and gone. I don't know how well it'll work for a young family per se, but when we eat on a plant-based diet, we only buy for two or three days at a time Mm. so that we're not, and we plan it out so that we're not wasting any produce. Right. You know, because that can happen so much. And if you are buying loads of produce, it's not going to keep fresh for an extended period of time. And, you know, if you don't use it, then you're throwing it out. And then that's a waste of money and that's costing too much. Right. So this is definitely not a scientific trick, um, but it's something I've kind of picked up over the, basically my cooking lifetime. Mm -hmm. One thing I'm a huge fan of, especially if you're busy, is batch cooking. So 
for weekends. I usually get all my lunches ahead of time. They're kind of prepared on Sunday. So that's kind of out of the way. I don't need to worry about it. I'll just pull it out. I'll throw it in the oven, heat it up. That's it. Nice. Cooking, though, will actually help, particularly because the things that go bad, generally speaking, are the leafy greens. They go first. Right. If you cook them, though, they will stay a little bit longer. So that actually adds days to their life. So like, for example, I have broccoli rob this week for lunch. It's already sauteed and cooked for the week. So I know it'll stay till at least Friday. But if it was raw, it might not stay till Friday. So because I don't necessarily, I go shopping essentially once a week. Okay. So the way now I kind of choose what I'm going to cook, what days for dinner is more of the leafy greens. If I can't cook them ahead of time for some reason, say if they're in a soup or just kind of made ahead of time, they will get cooked earlier in the week. And maybe the more sturdy vegetables that'll hold up, maybe, you know, like your carrots and kind of other things that will stay longer. Mm -hmm. Those are for dinner on and like tomatoes, stuff like that. They'll stay for like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, because I know they have a longer shelf life. Right. So that's kind of how, because I, I only go shopping once a week, that's how I've started to do it. So the more leafier greens, unless they're like, again, exceptions to that, things like kale will stay a little longer. Um, I'll save those to like the latter end of the week. There you go. And that's kind of how I do it now. If I know it's going to go bad earlier, they'll get cooked Monday, Tuesday. If I know it'll stay, it'll be Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Awesome. And that's just experience in the kitchen. So that's kind of been my way to work around that. Trial and error. Try, Definitely you know, and everybody's got to, yes. <laughs> you know, figure out what works for them. Okay. So we're coming near the end of our time together. And I want to make sure that you're getting all your thoughts out for our listeners that you'd like to. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you're really desire to let us know? Well, I think we've kind of, we've touched upon it a couple of times here, but it's really important to understand that whatever chronic condition you might be dealing with, it did not develop overnight. Right. And to expect an answer or a magic pill in a week, a month, it's simply not going to happen. It's also really important to understand that if it developed, it also chances are it can go away too. Right. It's just going to take longer than you might think. And yes, it's going to be, you know, altering what you're doing a little bit, but again, make it, put it in a way that you can live with on a day-to-day basis and then just start adding to it. It's not going to happen overnight. I wouldn't recommend to anyone to become a vegan overnight or really do anything overnight. (laughs) More than 90% of the time, 95% of the time, this is why dieters fail. They go 100% into something and realize three weeks in, it's over. Yeah, That's it. I can't do it. I'm going out to a birthday dinner, whatever. And that's it. Right. Make small goals that you can live with every day with the intention to build upon it each week or something like that. Love that. That is really the key. And you will notice three, six months down the road, you're going to be like, holy crap, this much has changed. I didn't realize symptom X, Y, and Z started going away. Or I don't know, I lost five, 10 pounds and I wasn't even trying or something like that. These things happen, but you have to be consistent and come up with a plan. And maybe that's where working with someone helps. Yeah. But you can do it. It's just a question of, are you willing to commit to something? Absolutely. So I love your approach to everything. And I think we want to make sure our listeners are able to get a hold of you. So I know you have a YouTube channel and we'll link that in. The videos are fantastic, you guys. You need to go check that out. Website, what website will we find you at? So 
Evoke Health is where you can find our podcast, The Art of Eating. It's stuff that Dr. Callie and I do together. We have we post recipes on there all the time. You get our podcast. We do have some courses too. So if you're interested in kind of learning a little bit about health and stuff to buy and whatnot, we do have some online courses that might be helpful. I do have my practice website. I do work with people virtually. So if you're not in Brooklyn or New York or whatever, that's an option. Um, that's insideouthealthwellness.com. Easiest way to reach me is my email address. It's drvincentesposito, drvincentesposito at Gmail. I am on it every day. So that is definitely the easiest way to get to me. And yeah, the YouTube channel. That said, I will want to say something. I've been focusing more on kind of health tips. What I do plan on doing because it's something I am passionate about. I will be uploading a lot more step-by-step recipe videos. I want to shoot for like one a week. So if you really don't know what to do, you'll see it in like a six-minute video, how to do everything step-by-step. And that stuff is really fun for me. So I'm hoping if you're interested, they'll be going up. Well, one went up already, but they'll be going up weekly. That's fantastic because for me, that's my biggest struggle is I don't want to eat the same things over and over again and trying to figure out, you know, what recipes to do that's, you know, works within my lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So I look forward to those. Thank you. That's a great resource. Yeah. One thing I've tried to do for, well, basically since I started cooking is try not to repeat things. And within that, of course, there are failures. (laughs) Um, But you know what? That's kind of part of the process. I don't think I've ever been a very creative person, but the kitchen's been very nice for that. So I like, I think now for me, one of my missions is to really, other than the coaching, but I think for me, like cooking has become a real passion and showing people, hey, like you can eat really healthy stuff and it can taste really freaking good. That's kind of where I'm at. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, because that's a connotation that a lot of us get too, is that, oh, well, if it's healthy, it doesn't taste good. So that's great to know. Yes, that is a myth I am willing to bust and I will spend my life doing that. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Our listeners, make sure you know that Evoke Health is E-V-O-K-H-E-A-L-T-H.com. So no E in there. Mm-hmm. And we'll post all those links on the show notes. You'll get those listeners in the blog because we send out a weekly blog with the show as well as the notes just in the show itself. Dr. Esposito, thank you so much for sharing. You have been just a wealth of information. Oh. And I so appreciate you coming on and sharing with us. No, thanks. I appreciate it. Thank you for, you know, giving me the time. You bet. You bet. That's all for this episode of The Toxin Terminator. And we hope we've helped you remove the hidden toxins in your life for renewed health. If you're looking to continue your journey towards full rejuvenation, reach out to Amy directly by visiting amycarlson.com for your own one-on-one chat session, as well as your free toxic risk assessment. That's A-I-M-E-E carlson.com. And remember, you are just one small change away from renewed health.